0: We are finishing up our short little series we had. This is uh, part three in our Godly Requests series. We've been looking at the the final week of Jesus' life, which is not to say the last week of him on earth because he was was around for quite some time after he uh, resurrected from death, but the last week of life before he died is what we've been looking at. So now we're actually going to pick it up. After the resurrection. So we've been building up. We started on Palm Sunday when he enters into Jerusalem. And then we looked at kind of leading up to the cross. And then, of course, for Good Friday, we had a Selah event where we looked at what Jesus said on the cross. And then on Sunday, this past Sunday, we celebrated his resurrection. And so now we're going to pick it up right after the resurrection. So um, tonight's sermon is called To Have and To Hold. And we're going to be looking at seven things that Jesus came to bring us. We're still going to be looking at different questions that we're going to come across as we read this text. We're going to be looking at godly requests. But uh, we're also going to be focusing on these seven things that, that Jesus came to bring us. There's, of course, more than seven, but those are the ones we're going to be looking at. Um, this phrase, to have and to hold, before we get into this, we have all heard it. Some of us has said it uh, at weddings. Um, but it's actually a legal term and this comes from the law.com it's like the dictionary part of the law.com so this is the definition of to have and to hold it says an old phrase that means that one who transfers property has the property in hand and intends to hold it and transfer it to the transferee so to, as sort of an example, this would be like, say my grandpa passed away, right? And he's got a living trust now. My dad is the one who lives in town. So he would deal with all the legal stuff. And then the, the lawyers or whatever would give him the trust and say, all right, this is your portion and the rest, this is for you to have and to hold until which time your brothers come into town or this date or whatever. You know, he is in possession of it, but he's actually going to be transferring it to... So it's a temporary holding. Yes, but, of course, (laughs) to go on with the definition, it says frequently used as a phrase during a marriage ceremony, which indicates uh, the intention of the parties to be joined together as one. So to have is the... You actually or having whatever you're having, right? The holding, that's always determined by the following phrase. So, to have and to hold until which time, blah, blah, blah. Or, of course, in a wedding, it's to have and to hold until death from, from this part. day forward until death do us part. So, you're having and holding each other for the rest of your lives. So, these seven things that we're going to be talking about, there's are seven things that Jesus came to bring us to have and to hold. Um and so we can start in John chapter 20. And we're going to be looking at the tail end of John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. All right. John 20 verse 19 it says, "Then the same day at evening. Okay, So this is the day of the resurrection. That's what we just celebrated this past Sunday. And what just happened is Mary is at the tomb, it's empty, she's crying, Jesus approaches her, she doesn't recognize him, and then he comforts her, he just says her once once he says her name, all of a sudden she's like, Lord Jesus, it's you, like she recognizes his his voice when he speaks to her. But it's that same day, right? The day of the resurrection, being the first day of the week. Which day is that? Seven first day of the week is a Sunday. So you can remember that by the way a calendar is laid out. It always starts on a Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The Jews, our calendar is set up because God said, in six days I created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day I rested. So that seventh day, Saturday, was when the Israelites would rest. It's when they would honor the creation and uh, remember that God is our creator and he's the one we worship. So they, they would rest on that day. They would worship on that day. Then what happened is Jesus comes and he rises from death on the first day. So ever since then, the people who have faith in Jesus, people who believe in Jesus, we started worshiping on Sunday because he fulfilled all the law. He fulfilled all the prophets. He fulfilled the whole Old Testament and he's ruling, and we are celebrating his resurrection and the fulfillment of, of everything to that point. So every time you look at a calendar and see that Sunday is day one, remember Jesus rose for, died for your sins and rose again to conquer sin and death. So that's something to remember there. Verse 19, though, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... So this, the doors being shut, if you're afraid somebody's going to come after you and kill you, like, you're not just going to go in and shut the door. Like, the doors are shut, locked, bolted, like, they are inside, doors are locked. That's the, the point of what John is saying here. They're at this place, they're inside, the doors are locked, and Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So this is number one of the seven things Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring peace to mankind, to have and to hold. Now, this peace is not exactly how the Israelites imagined it. We talked a little bit about this this a uh, couple of, uh, weeks ago. But they were, you know, worshiping and praising Jesus on Palm Sunday. And they're like, you know, Hosanna, save us now. Save us now in the highest. You know, because they were expecting this physical kingdom to be ruled by the Christ And all of their enemies were going to be judged and killed. And everyone else was going to live in peace from sea to shining sea. The entire world ruled by their God, by their Christ, by their king. And they were going to be like ruling with him. That's what they were expecting. So when that wasn't how it panned out and Jesus ends up getting killed, they were a part of it. They were the ones then yelling crucify him. This peace that Jesus came to bring is a spiritual peace. It's a peace with God. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's something that, you know, they didn't, they couldn't grasp, they couldn't hold on to because they didn't understand that it was a spiritual peace that the Christ was bringing. Verse 20 says, When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, Jesus looked a little bit different than he did before. and There's multiple situations where people who know him, he shows up and they don't really recognize him. And then he speaks, like we said with Mary. Once he says her name, she recognizes his voice. And we don't know exactly why he didn't look the same. Many have speculated, and I'll add a little bit of speculation here. Uh, I think it was not that he was glorified, and that he was like totally different form, that he looked completely different... I think it was simply that he didn't have a beard anymore because they ripped it out while they were taking him to be crucified. He had less hair because they were tearing it out and beating him. He was wearing different clothes. He wasn't dressed as a rabbi, right? He, he, he didn't look the same. He had maybe lost some weight. He, he looks different. We've all had dads that probably shaved their mustache at one point in our life. We're like, whoa, I don't even recognize you. Like, you, you look different. You could walk in the room somebody who has a big beard which jesus probably did if he then didn't have that he would kind of almost not be even recognizable but he it seems to be that he had a distinctive voice because it's always when he says something it's always when he says a name or when he just speaks and they're like whoa that's jesus like he had a very distinctive voice now isaiah prophesies and tells us he he looked like a regular guy he wasn't very distinctive looking but he was very distinctive, obviously, in the way that he carried himself and how he spoke and his his voice specifically. Um, some people will try and point to this Jesus looking different thing as a as an impersonator, like, oh yeah, Jesus didn't really really rise. Just somebody who like was pretending to be Jesus. That's why never, nobody recognized him. Um, no impersonator is that good. That like all of his best friends and his brothers <laughs> are like. This is him. This is absolutely him. And they're, like, celebrating that it's him. They're right there. You know, it's not from a distance. It's, like, feeling, touching, hanging out. Like, this is Jesus. Absolutely. No impersonator can fool that many people. They all recognize him. They recognize his voice, his mannerisms. And here, he's showing them his scars. And they they recognize that. And, like, especially John. Like, John saw all that happen. It's like, oh, yeah, the spear being stabbed in your side like I was there when that happened. So no impersonator is that good. This is absolutely Jesus. Moving on in verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is a little weird. Uh, (laughs) What is happening here is that Jesus is breathing life into them and commissioning them to continue his ministry. In Genesis chapter 2, it says that uh, "...the Lord formed man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life." And man became a living being. So in John chapter 3, Jesus tells the man the only way to have eternal life is to be born again. So Jesus is mirroring this this verse in Genesis chapter 2, uh, when he's breathing into the disciples the new life of the new covenant that is brought by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, here's the Holy Spirit that I am breathing. I'm bringing life into you, this new life, this rebirth, and he's saying, beyond that, he's also, again, commissioning them to take his ministry. So for that, we're going to come back here to John chapter 20. Let's flip back a couple, few pages to John 17. We're not going to look at this whole chapter. It is the longest prayer recorded that Jesus prayed. And it's at the Last Supper. And... We're just going to look at a little portion here. John 17, 16 through 23 is what we're going to be reading. He says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He's speaking specifically of his disciples here. That um, that they're not of the world because he's not of the world. Verse 17, he says, Sanctify them. He's Again, he's praying to God the Father. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That sounds familiar? Yeah, look at verse 21. He says, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also sent you. So he is here fulfilling the prayer that he's praying to God a few chapters earlier here. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word." So this prayer, again, it's right before Jesus is arrested and then crucified. And so what he's saying here in 19, that he's going to sanctify himself so that his disciples are sanctified. But he says, not just them, but those who will believe by their word. He's saying that he's going to sacrifice himself so that those who believe in him may be clean. And what sanctification is, what sanctify means, it just simply means to set apart. So he's saying, I'm going to set myself apart so that those who believe in me will also be set apart. So that sacrifice that he did for us, like in our place for our sins. And when we believe in him, then we are sanctified because he is sanctified. Verse 20 there, he says, I pray for not just these, so not just the disciples, but those who believe because of what the disciples said. He's praying here for us, that we might believe through the word of the disciples. Um, This is significant because he's, he's showing so much to the disciples, right? They see firsthand. John was his nearest and dearest best friend. He sees so much of what Jesus did, and then he is able to tell about it, firsthand. It's not like, oh yeah, hundreds of years later, this guy wrote things that like maybe happened. No, John was there. He saw from beginning to end all of Jesus's ministry. And so by what he saw and then wrote down, we are able to read and believe. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one In us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Does everybody follow that? Number two of what Jesus came to to bring us. He came to bring us unity. Jesus came to unite us to each other, unite us to himself, and through him be united to God. So there's a little bit of uh, separation that we need to, to note here. I have a kind of little image in my notes here us right we are being united with him and Jesus says as I am re- as I am united with you father so I show this little diagram because some will try and say oh we're going to become gods cuz you know this confusing verse here like where we you united with Jesus and then to be re- to be united with God, oh, so we're going to be God. We're going to become God. And it's like, no. Like, you know, read the verse again, understand what it's saying, that we are united, united with Jesus as he's united to the Father. We're not being completely united to the Father like in the same exact way. What I'm saying is that Jesus is the bridge. He's the one that, he's fully man, he's fully God. So he's the one that has one hand on us and one hand with God and he's the one that brings us together. He's our high priest, right? Back in the day, in order to get sanctification, the only person who could go into the what was called the Holy of Holies is where the presence of God dwelt. The only person who would, could go in there once a year was the high priest. And if he was any kind of sinful, he would just drop dead in the presence of God, and they'd have a rope tied around his rope, and if he did drop dead, they'd, they'd pull him out, because he didn't, do the things that God wanted him to do and so what Jesus did is he broke that wall Right when Jesus died that veil it was this like two foot curtain that was really high and when Jesus died on the cross that veil ripped from top to bottom an impossible thing for man to do but that signified that separation was done because of what Jesus did on the cross you think it was two feet thick Mm-hmm. I like to be wide, thick. So that that's how thick the curtain was. It's like super heavy, crazy weaves together curtain. <laughs> it yeah. made something like a wall. It's all in the old. Oh, you want if you wanted the logistics. <laughs> it's, it's all in there. <laughs> uh, the next thing that Jesus came to to bring us here is in verse twenty-two. Sorry, did we read 21? Yeah, so verse 21, uh, that all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So he's given us unity to have and to hold and he's given us glory. Jesus came to give us glory. Romans talks about us receiving the righteousness of Christ, right? So Jesus lived exactly, like I said, fully man. So Any temptations that you have, Jesus had those as well. Any Anything that you go through, depression, anxiety, anything like that, Jesus had a lot of that, especially towards the end of his life. But anything that you go through, Jesus experienced, but he didn't fall into that temptation. He didn't actually sin. He had a perfect life. And Romans talks about that when we have faith in him, right, in his sanctifying work, then we are sanctified with him. We actually receive the righteousness of Christ, and we receive the glory that he has received. And that's what he's saying here. So, back to John chapter 20 here. And the reason we looked at that is because, again, Jesus is fulfilling a lot of what he's praying about there, here after he is resurrected. And John 20, uh, looking at 23 again, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So I kind of want to break this down a little bit and and get into what exactly he's saying here, because this can kind of seem like, well, so is he saying if they forgive somebody, then they're forgiven? Well, let's, again, let's kind of back up, reverse, and, and kind of look at these things a little separately. So there's a little bit of discussion here. What is sin? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way to, to put it. A lot of college professors will say, like, there is no truth. There's absolutely no absolute truths. And if there wasn't a God, then sure, that could be true. But there is a God. And so there is absolute truth, and there are rules. There are things that God says, this pleases me. I despise this. I do like this. I don't like that. And so, if that's true—if God created us, and He created truth, and He created things He He likes, and then we perverted it to do things He doesn't like, then we have to follow those rules, no matter what those rules are. We say, "Okay, God, that's that's how you do things," then that's how I want to do things. So it's breaking God's rules. God makes the rules. Say anything. What is forgiveness? This can get a little com- more complicated. We're leaving someone of the, um, burden of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Payment for their sin? Yeah. The consequence of? The Bible would say it's to not impute, right? So when you sin against somebody, there's a debt that needs to be paid. And so to to forgive that debt is to say I don't I don't hold it against you like you don't have to pay that debt that's that's what forgiveness is that's like the an easy definition is like hey like you stole five bucks from me but you know what I forgive that debt you you don't have to give the five dollars back wow okay all right next question does sin need forgiveness yeah. Yeah. The Bible says that the wages of sin, right, that debt that we accrue with God, right? If, if God made the rules and then we break his rules, what's, what is it that we owe? Well, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. So if we break God's rules, we deserve to die and be punished in hell for those sins. That's, that's literally what we deserve. I'm going to quickly, you don't have to go there if you don't want, I'm going to quickly go to Exodus chapter 21. It's going to kind of pull part, we talked about God's law, right? This is, I'm pulling a little piece out just for an example here. Uh, Exodus 21, 22 through 25, it says, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows... He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. Okay? And he shall pay as the judges determine. So a guy hurts a woman. She gives birth prematurely. If the baby's okay, then the husband and wife can talk and say, "I, it caused us stress, it caused us this, it caused us that. He either needs to give us a sum of money, or we get to beat him, or they would go to the judges and say, this is what seems right to us, and the judge could say, yeah, that seems like a right payment for the wrong that was done to you. And then that would be carried out on the the sinner, right? Going on, verse 23, it says, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for Stripe. So, if the baby does, the premature baby has some sort of injury because of the premature birth. The arm doesn't work properly, or you know, the baby dies, or or maybe whatever whatever happens happens to the person who injured the pregnant woman. So, if the arm doesn't work, break the arm. If the baby's born blind because of the premature. The person is blinded. If the person kills the baby, that person gets killed. That's the law. But what could happen in these situations is the family could say, we choose not to impute his sin against him. Maybe it's a family member or maybe they, they, whatever. They could say, the family could say, we forgive his sin. And he will not be punished as our baby. We don't want this thing to go on and on. Okay? So, with that in mind, is forgiveness deserved? No. Absolutely not, right? If somebody hurts a pregnant woman, that baby is born premature, and something goes wrong with the baby, the baby dies, like, that that's punishable. That's punishable. And it's a gracious thing, right? Getting a little ahead of myself, but it's 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 not deserved for that family to say, you know what? We don't want any more pain. We don't want any more death. We, we forgive the sin. So, my my question is, uh, what is it called when you do something that deserves punishment, but you don't get punishment? Grace. Yeah. Mercy. Yeah. That's the one I'm looking for, mercy. Grace is a type of, of mercy, right? But it's mer- people say, I have mercy on me. Like, you know, hey, please don't, like, <laughs> hold this sin against me. But it's not deserved. It's something that you do, people would ask for, especially people who did break the law. They would go and say, hey, please, please have mercy on me. Don't, don't hold this against me. Please forgive this debt. Forgive this thing, right? It is. It's. It's a merciful thing. It's a gracious thing to say. I am going to forgive you. Okay. Uh, Romans nine sixteen says it's. It's not him who runs. It's not human will or exertion. Right. That gets you mercy. But it's. It's God who gives mercy. In in Luke chapter five, uh, Jesus is teaching in a house and it's so crowded that nobody can get in, and this guy has these. This, this guy's lame. His, his legs don't work. And his friends, <laughs> they want him to be healed. So they break through the roof and they, they lower him right in, in front of Jesus. And it says that Jesus, seeing their faith, looks down at the man and says, man, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious, you know, leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees are like, wow. And it says, they reasoned within themselves, right? They're not saying it to them, to each other, but they're reasoning inside themselves, and they say, this is blasphemy. Like, who is able to forgive sins but God alone? Now, their theology's right, but their conclusion was wrong. Their theology's right. God alone is able to forgive, because he makes the rules. So if we do something wrong, if we sin, it's against God. And he's the only one that can ultimately... Forgive us of our sins. But Jesus saying, your, your, your sins are forgiven, it wasn't blasphemy because he was God. And he was able to do these things. Okay? So, then what he says, he, he, he reads their mind, right? He says, why do you reason within yourselves? What's what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? I'll leave I'll that question for you. What, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? I guess stand up and walk, because that's like an immediate visual thing that you can see. But the, but if you're, if you're fraudulent, yeah. the easier thing to say is, is your sins are forgiven, because it's, you can't see that. Mm-hmm. So if you're Precisely. faking it, yeah. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, is that true? Like, we can't, that's not observable. There's no observable evidence, right? So Jesus says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? But to show that I have the authority to forgive sins, he says, man, stand up and walk. And this lame man stands up, picks up his bed, and walks home, praising God the entire time because he's been healed and forgiven, And so Jesus shows that he has the power to forgive and the power to heal because only God can do those two things. And he shows that he is able to do them. Yeah, I always thought that a question like, what's easier to say, like this or that, I thought that was because like, saying to stand up and walk was almost like, in their viewpoint back then, that was the same as saying like, your sins are forgiven. Because... If you were lame or blind, it was viewed as like because you sinned or your parents sinned, so this bad thing has befallen on you. Maybe they did view things that way. That's not how God views things, but right. yeah, that's how they. So yeah, He was kind of playing on their cultural view of of things too. That's probably that's a good good point. But anybody could say your sins are forgiven. And people might be like, "Oh, this—that's not okay. He can't say that." But then he shows that he can do both, you know, and that shows his—that shows his power. So Jesus came to give forgiveness. Um, he came to give forgiveness of sins. And remember what we talked about—I think it was two weeks ago—in Mark, it says that if you don't forgive then you won't be forgiven. Elsewhere in the Bible it says, if you don't show mercy, then no mercy will be shown you. This is something, a responsibility that we have. And, and that actually sounds pretty similar to what we were looking at in John chapter 20, right? He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain them then the, the, uh, the sins of any, then they are retained. It's, it's similar, but it's a little bit different. If you forgive, then you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. But this is a, di- a little bit different because he's saying if you forgive somebody else, then they are forgiven. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. We're going to be back to John 20, I promise. 2 Corinthians 5. Jumping around a bit tonight. 2 Corinthians 5.17. says, therefore, if anyone... Is in Christ. He is a new creation, right? Born again. New life breathed into them. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, our, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ Jesus and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, right? There's that forgiveness of sins, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For... He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, here we see a little bit of a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And and we see it, he's saying the word reconciliation over and over again here, but we see a little bit of a difference even in uh, 19. He says, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. But then he begs, right, we employ you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So there's this two-way street going on. And the Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the world, right? But then there's the responsibility on us to come to him and ask for that reconciliation. Think of a friend who's wronged you. Right. Think of a friend who's wronged you really bad, and maybe you haven't. You're like, we're done, and you don't see him, right? But God working with you and and you working with God and, and praying, eventually you forgive that person. Now you haven't seen that person in years, but you've forgiven them. You don't want any bad for them. You don't. You know. You're praying for good. Maybe they're a Christian, and you're you're you still want good for them, right? But you have full-on forgiven them. That relationship isn't reconciled. It's not, it's not completely made right. It's not put back together. But there is forgiveness. Now, say you two run into each other once again, and they say, hey, I want some sort of relationship. Then reconciliation can happen. Because it's like, oh, you're sorry. I've already forgiven you. Sure. We can have a friendship. We can have a, a relationship. So there's a difference you see between forgiveness and reconciliation. Some people who sin against somebody else, especially in the Christian world, this is a sad thing that happens, but a Christian can wrong someone and then act like forgiveness is deserved. Hey, you have to, you have to reconcile and, and forgive me. And it's like, well, hey, hang on a second. Like, that's not how that works. Like, I I got to, you know, I, I can't just say I forgive you. Again, it's easy to say it, but, like, to really mean it, like, is a different thing. And so, we need to realize that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. We can't force either of those things on someone else. If we wrong somebody, we can't say, you have to forgive me. <laughs> if you don't forgive, then you won't be forgiven. <laughs> it's like... You need to be a little gracious to them and say, man, I need i need to let them have space and let them heal. And yes, I want to seek that relationship to be reconciled, but I, you can't force them to be Jesus. <laughs> it's like you need to realize that you wronged them and you need to work to make it right. Or if you're the person who's wronged, you need to realize you do need to forgive. And sometimes that might take a while. But once you forgive, make sure that you don't just, foolishly jump right back into a relationship with somebody. If it's not safe, you need to, you know, have Christian counsel to help you get back into that relationship. But what I'm saying is that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And Jesus forgave us on the cross, and reconciliation is made when we come to him. And that's why Paul says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. The reconciliation, it's there. It's ready. It's waiting for those who don't believe Come to the cross, repent of your sins, turn away from all the wicked that you're doing, and be reconciled to God. So, Jesus came to give us forgiveness of sins. Not only that, he came to give us reconciliation. That's the next thing that he came to give us, to have and to hold. Reconciliation. We can actually have a right relationship with God. It was broken because of sin. But we are able to step into that relationship because of what Jesus did. We can have a right relationship, not through a priest or through something. You know, We can actually have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that lived in Jesus, living in us. We can know God. And not have to do all these religious rituals and weird things, but speak to Him. And He he hears us right away. Not only did He come to give us that reconciliation, right? Again, He's the bridge. He's the one who Bridges us between, you know, the Bible says that we have one mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, right? So he's fully God, he's fully man, and he bridges us together with God. So he gave us that reconciliation. He also gave us ministry. Jesus came to give us the ministry of reconciliation and reconciling the world to God. We need to be those ones that are imploring, hey, I implore you, like, be reconciled to God. And this is a service to God, right? But it's also a service to man, obviously, because it's bringing people out of their sin and wickedness and into righteousness and glory. The word ministry actually means service. So you're serving God when you're telling people about Jesus, and you're also serving man, bringing them into that reconciled relationship. So let's go back to John chapter 20 after that uh, bit of a detour. So there where he says, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So what Jesus is saying when he says this, is he's empowering them with the power of the Holy Spirit To continue in his ministry. And that ministry is the forgiveness and reconciliation. Right? So he is. One he's teaching them forgiveness. Right? Everyone in that room. Split as soon as he got arrested. They all ran. They all abandoned him. He had no friends to go through the hardest thing that he had to go through. In his life. They were all gone. So he is. Showing up in a locked room, and forgiving them, and then saying now you take this forgiveness and you make it a ministry. Because what happens when we and again, it's not us who forgives and we need to remember that. That's why we went through that whole thing of what's sin, what's forgiveness, who gives forgiveness, who gives mercy, it's God. And what (laughs) he's telling them to do is to present that reconciliation to mankind. And when you present that then you are offering them the forgiveness of God. He's not saying, John, you are able to forgive sins. No, only God can forgive sins. That is true throughout the Bible. What he's saying is, when you offer this, you're offering them a chance of reconciliation. And when you don't offer it, you're depriving them of that chance. He's putting responsibility on them once again. Take the ministry and take the mantle and continue on and carry it. Verse 24 Says, now Thomas, called the twin. Okay, Thomas is called the twin. He's not called Doubting Thomas. I feel a little bad for Thomas. <laughs> it's a bad rap. It says, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here we go back to the theme of godly requests, and I'm going to ask this question Is it a godly request to want to see God? It's tough, right? Because there are Psalms, Psalm 24, Psalm 27 talks about seeking the face of God. We sing songs. I want to know you. I want to see your face. See your face, <laughs> right? Moses stood before God, and he was God was always talking to him. And Moses says, "God, I want, I want to see you." God says, "No one can see me and live. <laughs> like you will die if you stand in the, my presence because we're not perfect, and He is, and we can't exist in perfection." And so, God says, "But." I'll pass through this cleft in a rock, and you'll see my glory for a glimpse." So he does that, and it's so powerful that Moses' face glows, it shines, and when he comes down off that mountain, everyone's freaked out because he's glowing. right? The presence of God is so amazing that just a glimpse of it makes Moses' face shine. But my point is that Moses asked to see God. The Psalms talk about wanting to see God. We sing about wanting to see God. So is it a godly request? Yeah. Depends where your heart's at. Yeah. He's demanding evidence, visual evidence, that's not necessarily his right to visual evidence. Yes. I uh, was talking to Annie about it, and I really liked the way that she put it. She said, asking to see God in order to believe is different than asking to see God when you believe Mm -hmm. or asking to see God because you believe. And the people who God reveals himself to visually, like Moses, the glimpse, right? Mm -hmm. Moses was a very faithful man and he loved God and he was obeying God all the time. And the Bible says that to him who has more will be given to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. So if you have faith in God, God actually gives more evidence to you. The Holy Spirit will be inside you, giving you more evidence, showing you more things. You might even see miracles or or different kinds of things, but there will be testimony of God strengthened when you have faith in him. But when you don't believe and you're like, I want to see a sign, that's what the Pharisees did. Jesus says, no sign will be given to you. Because you already have the word of God and you're not listening to that. So, asking to see God is, is I mean, right? We're, we're also told that when Jesus comes back, that we will see him face to face. We'll know him just as we are known. Like, that's an amazing thing to look forward to. We, we long for that. We want that, right? But here, Thomas, he, he, he does fail. He does slip up here. Because what he says in verse 25 is, Unless I see his hands, right? Unless I see the nail prints, the scars in his side, and put my fingers in them, I'm not believing. I need evidence to believe. Verse 26 says, And after eight days, right? It's been eight days since they've seen Jesus. His disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut again in a locked house. And Jesus came and stood in the midst and said peace to you then he said to Thomas reach out your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side do not be unbelieving but believing and Thomas answered and said to him my Lord and my God this is Maybe one of my favorite prayers in the whole Bible. <laughs> it's like, my Lord and my, sometimes that's all you can think to say it, my Lord and my God. And just, this is what I kind of wish Thomas was remembered for, right? We don't call Peter like, denying Peter, you know? <laughs> like, I don't like defining somebody about a mistake, right? Thomas, yeah, he screwed up. He said, I didn't need to see God. And really, when you think about it, like, the other disciples got to see him. Right, if you remember in, in verse twenty, it says Jesus showed him his hands and showed him his side. Look, this is where the spear was. Here's here's the nail scar, hands. Right, they already were able. To, so he's probably like, "Well, I want to. I, I didn't see it. You know, <laughs> are you messing with me? Or, I mean, Thomas is also like the last guy back. They were all assembled. Thomas wasn't with him He shows up late. He's like, ah, "I'm I'm done. I can't do this anymore." And then Jesus shows up and says, "Don't be unbelieving, but believing." And Thomas praises God. Verse twenty-nine. Then Jesus said to him, "Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe." Who's he talking about there? Us. Yeah. Because again, he's not talking about the apostles. They are. They did see. They already saw his hand. They saw his side. So he, he's saying, "There's a blessing on us because we believe." Just like he prayed in John 17 that we would believe by the words of his disciples. There's a blessing on us for that. Verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He continued to show himself to be the Christ and to be the Son of God. He did many other things which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you may have life in his name jesus did many other things if you remember our study through acts he after his resurrection he was around for another 40 days so the series wasn't the last week of his life on earth because he was there for another 40 days it was the last week before he he died first Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to over 500 people at a time during this 40 days he was not only going to his best friends but he was going to large groups of people and preaching to them lots of people saw Jesus and in first Corinthians 15 when Paul says that he says most of these people are still alive go interview them go it was him you know his Beard starts growing back. It starts looking like Jesus. It's like, this is him. This is the Christ. This is, and he rose from dead. We all saw him die. He rose from the dead. And then he goes on to ascend into heaven. So in closing, Jesus prayed for you, every single one of you. He prayed for you that you might believe through the word of truth and reconciliation that was preached by the apostles. He then gave himself as a sacrifice for you, each of you individually, and he died the most horrendous way imaginable because he knew that some people who were going to be forgiven deserved the worst kind of death. And he died that death for them as well in order to cover any kind of sin. He then rose from the dead after three days, just as it was prophesied hundreds of years before he lived. He appeared to his best friends, to massive groups of people, showed them his scars, and continued to preach truth and reconciliation and forgiveness. And he he proved that he was risen by doing these things. And after that, he ascended, again, if you remember from our series through Acts, he ascended into heaven. And he took the rightful throne, his rightful throne that he left in order to do all these things at the right hand of God the Father. And all of these things that we've been looking at this past few weeks, all of these were recorded that you, each and every one of you, might believe and be forgiven and receive the truth and go back into right relationship with God. So the final thing that Jesus came to bring is the way. Jesus came to prepare and show us the way to right relationship with God. He said that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And all of these things are given to us, right? But he says, no man comes to the Father but through me. The only way to God the Father, the only way into right relationship with God the Father is through Jesus and faith in what he did on the cross and in his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his being seen by hundreds of people, knowing for a fact it is Jesus. And when we do have faith in him, then we are in that right relationship. But again, the reason I'm kind of going through all this is to also say live worthy of the calling for which you were called. What calling? the calling to bring the word of reconciliation to the world. Jesus came down from heaven for you. He did all of these things that I just mentioned for you, that you might believe. And John is writing, I wrote these so that you, reader, whoever you are, might believe that this is true and have right relationship with God. So if Jesus did all of these things for you, What can you do for him? You're never going to be able to repay that debt. I'm not saying repay God. But what I am saying is, yeah, live worthy of the calling. Try. Do what he says. Whatever it is that he tells you to do, obey him and walk in that right relationship. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for loving us so much and for sending your son to do all of these things and all of them to bring us into right relationship with you, God. I pray that you will speak to us individually about the things that we need to bring to you to ask forgiveness and to be in right relationship. And I pray that you give us uh, those specific things that you want us to do, no matter how small they are or no matter how big they are, that we wouldn't be afraid to do them. We wouldn't be afraid to give up that little thing that we think no one knows about, and that we wouldn't be afraid to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Whatever those things are that you want us to do, God, I pray that you would speak to us individually, and I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in the way. God, we love you and we praise you, and I pray that you bless the rest of this evening. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.